0: What is the worst thing that you've ever experienced? Perhaps it was the death of somebody close to you. Perhaps it was a betrayal by a good friend or a partner. Maybe it was a divorce or a health issue or a job loss or a combination of any or all of these things. What did you do? What do you do when the whole world seems to be falling in around you? Hi. I'm Tony Denbach and I'm the lead pastor of Clearview Community Church. We're one church in multiple locations. And as I record this, we're in the middle of our annual week of prayer. And those questions uh, that I asked as we began are what our text for this week of prayer has been talking about. See, we've been looking at Psalm 63, a song of David. Like all scripture, it's best understood in its proper context. We can understand the context by asking the key questions like who, what, where, when, why, and how. Well, it is King David, the most famous king in the history of Israel, who is writing this psalm. But he's not writing it from the palace in Jerusalem. He's writing it instead in the wilderness. Now, most scholars conclude that the context is this. He has left the comfort of home and the city he loved because his own son, Absalom, Has staged a revolt against him. Now, the why of this is complex. See, David, for all of his good qualities, was not a good father. He had several women in his life, taking advantage of his position as king. And with children from different women, there were a lot of problems in relationships that arose, some of them that were very, very serious. Now, David neglected to discipline one of his sons when he did something horrible. And Absalom, his other son, took it upon himself to make things right. He waited and plotted for two years and then murdered Amnon, his stepbrother, who was the culprit. Now, all this time, David did nothing to intervene. Now, from that moment on, Absalom began to actively undermine his father's authority with the people. And he eventually organized an army to place himself on the throne, even though he wasn't the rightful heir. And in spite of all this, David repeatedly forgave his son and wouldn't lift his hand against him. And when he heard that Absalom was about to march on Jerusalem, he decided the best thing he could do was to avoid bloodshed by getting out of the city with his closest followers. And it was in the wilderness, as a fugitive, that David wrote this psalm. Now let's try to understand the thoughts and feelings that are going through David's mind here. He's now running for his life. Not so much out of fear, but because he doesn't want to make a bad situation worse. You see, David is a warrior. He was the one who slew Goliath. He had been victorious leading his armies in many battles. He wasn't afraid of a fight. No, he's running into the wilderness because he doesn't want to see more innocent people get hurt. Now, if you read 2 Samuel chapter 13-18, through 18, you'll get the whole picture of this. But David has messed up badly, and he knows it. Now, as he's traveling with most of his family and his loyal troops, some people along the way even throw rocks and dirt at him from the side of the road. He's the king. But David doesn't stop them or get his troops to intervene because he feels like he deserves what he gets. So what is he feeling? Shame? Probably. He's been a lousy father, and he knows it. He's reaping what he's sown in years of neglect. And it wasn't that he didn't love his kids. It's that his love wasn't expressed in action. He left things unattended. He didn't step in when he should have. He now felt that responsibility for his inaction. He's also feeling betrayal. How did it reach the point where his own son, the son he loved deeply, was now trying to take his kingdom from him by force. And how in the world did he not see this coming? Not only was he a bad father, he also messed up as a king, and all of Israel was now at risk because of him. His level of desperation was revealed in the abandonment of the capital city. He simply didn't know what else to do. And that's where he is, likely off by himself now, finding solitude in a cave, as he sits down to write what is on his heart, And I'm glad it's recorded for us in Scripture. So let's read Psalm 63. It says, You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. So this failure, this king-turned-refugee running in the wilderness, was called by the prophet Samuel, a man after God's own heart. We look at his story, his bad decisions, his horrible behavior, his sin, and we ask, how could he be called that? Well, the answer is revealed in these words of Psalm 63. Where does David turn when his world is falling apart? Where does he go when he's losing his footing and doesn't know what to do? He turns to God. Can you hear the desperation in his voice as he begins? You, God, are my God earnestly, I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. See, God is everything to David. And he begins with this. God, you're my desire. Now, desire is probably not even a strong enough word here. It's more like a craving. This speaks of desperation. It is echoed in Matthew chapter five and verse six, when Jesus said, blessed or happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. See, most of us living around here today have never likely experienced real hunger or real thirst, as in we'll die if we don't get something now. And I'm thankful for that. In the church in which I grew up, we had some wonderful ladies who were raised during the Great Depression uh, that took place in 1929 through 1939. And I remember being in the kitchen for one of our church breakfasts as they were cooking. They were cracking eggs and putting them into a bowl for scrambled eggs. Now, as they did that, before they threw out the shell, they would take their finger and they would run it around the inside of the eggshell and throw that into the bowl. Now, even though the depression was 40 years before this, they remembered the hunger enough that they wouldn't waste a drop of egg white. (laughs) Now, it's hard for most of us to imagine that kind of hunger, but it changes you. It changes the way that you think. It changes the way that you live. And David said, earnestly, I seek you. I thirst for you. He felt that kind of desperation, not for physical food or water, but for God. His was a soul need. He knew that he could not survive without the presence of God in his life. Here's the thing. This was not the first time that David had been in this place. He had been here several times before, knowing that if God didn't come through for him, he was in big trouble. And get this, sometimes that's exactly the place that God wants us to be. You see, often we only change when we hurt enough that we have to change. We reach the end of our abilities. The situation has spiraled out of our control. We've tied a knot at the end of our rope and we're hanging on for dear life. We've messed up so bad and all of the consequences are now piling up on us. That's where David was. He was desperate for God. His desire, his thirst was for what only God could give. Now, let me say, if you're there right now, Don't waste it. Here's what we see. God meets David there in the wilderness, right in the middle of his situation. The circumstances might not have changed in that moment, but he knows that God is there. And as God declared in Deuteronomy 31, I will never leave you. That's a promise of God for his people. So David's psalm turns to a different theme in Psalm 63 verses 5 through 8. Not only is God his desire, but God is his delight Is there someone you delight in? Now, I'm a grandfather of six beautiful grandchildren. Now, I'm tempted to show you their pictures because I'm a grandfather, but that would be cliche, so I'm going to resist the temptation today. But I delight in each of them. If you want to make me smile, let me see my grandkids. I remember during the peak of COVID when everyone was isolating and I couldn't see them for an extended period of time. And when that changed and they came to visit, the feeling was incredible. I hope you have people who make you feel like that. That's how David felt about God. Look at what he said in verses five through eight. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night because you are my help. I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Now, this is not cold, formal religion. This is a man who knew God, even in his running. God fully satisfied him. David sang praise to him. It exploded out of him. When he's lying in bed at night, he's thinking about the goodness of God. He loves him like a friend and clings to him. I love that this psalm is included here in the Old Testament. See, often we think of the Old Testament in terms of the sacrificial system with its rules and its regulations, and we picture God as this austere, hard-to-please old man. But that's not how David portrays him. He is his friend, and he delights in him. They have an incredible relationship. But that's not the end of the story for him or for us. We see in verses 9 through 11 that as a result of David's desire for God and his delight in God, he can now also know him as God, my defense. See, at the end of this chapter, David recounts his confidence that God will take care of him. He's not afraid of his enemies because he's secure in his God. God has him and he knows it. He says, those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals, but the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. Now where does David's great confidence come from? Is it well-founded? Is it merely an illusion? How could a man who had blown it as often as David had still have confidence that God had his back? Is that unconditional? No, God does not make himself a slave to do David's bidding. That's not what this is about. David knew that God was a God of mercy. When he messed up, he came to God in repentance. We see through the verses of this text that David didn't just know about God, he knew God. There was a relationship there that had been demonstrated over years and even decades. See, when David wrote these words, No doubt he was thinking about a battlefield long ago when he was just a teenager, and across the valley, a giant named Goliath challenged the armies of Israel and insulted God. But David declared in 1 Samuel 17, 45, 46, "'You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty.'" the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hands. See, David recognized then and now that the fight was never his in the first place. That's how a shepherd boy with a slingshot and some rocks could bring down the champion of the Philistine army. This was who he was still relying on today. He knew that in his own strength, there were no guarantees, but this wasn't about him god had placed david on the throne no one could remove him but god so we move forward now about three or four generations and we see another king on the throne of israel a man by the name of jehoshaphat now his kingdom was under siege by a huge army made up of at least three other kingdoms who had marched against them what was the king's response well he called all of the people together from all of the towns and villages and the city of Jerusalem, they joined together to pray, kind of like what we're doing in our week of prayer. And the king prayed in Second Chronicles 20 verse 12 that we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. This is the posture of a believer in the living God. It's a posture of need, but also of trust. It's the posture I've taken many times in my own life, When I face difficulties far too challenging to handle on my own, I turn to God. And I have prayed this prayer often. I've prayed it on my own behalf, on behalf of my family, my church, my community. I do not know what to do, but my eyes are on you, God. And God's response to the king came in verse 15. Through the prophet, God spoke and said, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours, but God's. This was the reality that David was talking about. This was the God he served. The king will rejoice in God because God is the one who is on the throne. Now, in your life and mine, we will come up against obstacles that are simply too great to overcome. What do we do in those moments? The answer to that question defines us in so many ways. What do we do when the rubber meets the road and it's no longer about pretense and appearance? It's about what we truly believe. I have learned what David knew to be true. God can be trusted. He can be trusted with your family, with your career, with your health, with your very life. Even when we've messed up, he offers us this beautiful thing called grace. And grace is simply the unmerited favor of God. We don't deserve it, but if we ask, he pours it out on our dry, barren lives and soaks us with it. Are you in need today? When Jesus said in Matthew 11:28, 28, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Speaking as a recipient of the grace of God, I can tell you that this is true. He loves you and he can be trusted. Would you pray with me? Dear God, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you that you are a God who hears and answers prayer. And for those who are listening today, may they know the forgiveness you provide. As your word says, if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we stand before you because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. And we ask you to intervene in our lives. Would you mend our brokenness? Would you heal our sickness? Would you comfort the hearts that mourn and provide for those in need? And would you help us to be your hands and your feet to the people that we encounter, for you call us to love one another. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So may we arise today, reminded that we are a needy people, but also that we serve a faithful God, And may we know that his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Thank you so much for watching today.